All right. Good morning, planet Earth. Greetings from a cold, like three jackets, gloves, and hat cold morning in the heart of New Jersey. We have Mars clearly seen in the west. We have a beautiful array of stars. I can see the hunter, Orion. Venus is not up yet, but it's a really, it's a real blessing. <clears throat> to have such a beautiful night. It's 4.30 in the morning. I'm dressed up like a construction worker. Got my radio headset on. I've got my uh, safety vest. Well, I got jogging pants, so that's a little different. Three jackets or sweater, a light jacket, and then my tactical jacket. And the, and the tactical jacket has like this Velcro thing. You can put patches on it. So I'd like to get a patch for our um, podcast that I can wear on my, on my right arm. It says, Podcasting in Progress. <clears throat> Walking up a hill here, so excuse the... Uh, just woke up. I listened to the No Agenda show. <laughs> Sir Chris had this amazing clip at the end where he did a rendition of uh, the cats in the cradle. <laughs> but he said the dogs in the stroller. The dogs in the stroller. Da, 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 da. Ba, 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 ba. And it was hilarious. The dogs in the stroller. Because I saw the lady with the dog in her stroller walking the dog. Let me take a sip of this coffee to, to see how good it is. Mm, that's good coffee. So, I know you missed our podcast yesterday. You said, where is episode 113? Or 112? How come we didn't go for a walk today? Let me tell you why. Because <clears throat> we recorded a podcast in the studio with Chris from the Abs in a Six Pack using a new technology called Clear Clean Feed. And we actually had a microphone, and the audio quality was amazing. <clears throat> so you're going to love this. And I hope to uh, bring it out in the next couple of days. You know, it's going to turn me into a normal podcaster. Like, taking days to produce instead of minutes. Having higher quality. So we might put this into uh, 
season three. This might actually be season three, episode two. Something I can be proud of. Can you imagine that? I guess we'll have to have some intro music soon. I'll ask my wife to play something. No, Chris, so I'm going to just go over some of the topics that we, that we left off on, that got stumped on. But I want to talk about certainty. See, the psychological need for security, for certainty, is quite overwhelming. Especially when presented with fear. So I guess the more afraid you get, the more security that you're going to seek. Or more, the more this insecurity becomes unbearable. Have a sip of coffee here, hold on. Mm, that is such good coffee, I'm so happy. So... Philosophically, people have been clinging on to um, the Catholic Church, which was the cornerstone of Western civilization for so long. And um, the Catholic Church doesn't even give enough credit to the Orthodox Church, which preceded it, and it came out of. And um, I would say some radical uh, Hebrew sects, which spawned uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which showed how Jesus lived, give insight into what came before then. But I think that... Uh, a lot of the conspiracy theory narratives um, are centered around basic ideas from the Bible. And I think that, um, let's just say uh, right-wing Christian fundamentalism is behind some of that. And let me explain myself. Right wing just means, in this case, the right aisle of parliament. So you divide the uh, people up into left and right sides, the uh, Democrats and the Republicans, let's say. And um, for a lot of people, religion is important, and I can respect that. And uh, even if they're all different, and uh, I do think that the freedom to practice religion is a very important thing for the sanity of a society, the sanctity. And you also have to think about how 
the um, America was founded by people who really wanted to escape persecution for being different. And they would be called bad names like, you know, fundamental fundamentalist nutjobs and told to leave. And then they left. And these people who were other people considered to be fundamentalist nutjobs risked their lives and death to go to the promised land where they were told that they would found a new place find a new place where their memes could be planted and spread and live in beautiful isolation with no one to bug them <clears throat> and they created little towns little settlements and all they wanted to do was be left alone basically well you have different like the Amish people they definitely wanted to be left alone there's other more let's call it um, aggressive forms that wanted to colonize and take over but whatever I mean, there is always different uh, mutations in the meme pool. You have the doves and the hawks. And given a population of doves, hawks will emerge by mutation and take over. <clears throat> until the doves learn to fight back. This is the... <sighs> thesis and antithesis and the synthesis. This is what Hegel, and I, I started reading Kant in original in German, and he starts with his thesis and antithesis. The critique of pure reason. And um, he lays out his theories like that. And he's quite the, uh, quite the genius. <clears throat> now, when I first read it, I could not approach it. But now, after listening to all these philosophy podcasts, <clears throat> I'm getting closer. Now, Kant was one of the first enlightened. And this was a move away from the church. But they still needed to satisfy the sense of security the sense of the sense of needing something that is linked with the term I just used certainty certainty and all of these ideas that are saying this is true for all things at all times, those are, that's like the philosophy of certainty and the philosophy of truth, which then got later rejected. People put these truths into rel, rel, putting, they made them relative based upon power structures. Um, modern philosophers say 
that these are just constructs for your time. And I guess if you're in the time of church, if you're in the time of living in a um, overbearing church, then um, you construct a philosophy that's compatible with that at the time. And that would offer the people just small changes, but keep the certainty of the church because they needed that. So they just swapped one variable out instead of all the variables. And then later, more and more variables got changed in a search for optimization that's happening. Now I'm listening to Richard Karp and he talks about these problems that are not network optimization problems which are not easily solvable. But the generic algorithm is to um, replace variables either one at a time or in rows or columns. Kind of like the uh, what you might have learned with linear algebra in solving uh, constraints. Multiply a column by a constant, add a constant to a column, etc., etc. And those types of operations are used to transform the ideas or the memes or the solutions. Because what is it except the solution that we're searching for? What is it but a survival system that we live in, which we're trying to survive. We're thrown into this world at birth and we have a survival program and we just continue to run that program. So, We try and predict what's going to happen. We manipulate the universe. Now, it's funny because at that time of the Enlightenment, the other people were going off to America to be to remain to remain unenlightened. They said, "Leave me alone. I don't care about your enlightenment. I want this certainty." And uh, they went in the other direction, really. So Europe went through the Enlightenment and America went back into the Dark Ages, if you, if you follow what I'm saying. Now, some of the Enlightenment philosophy, I guess, did come to America. And um, I guess that was what created the uh, Illuminati the Freemasons and all that. We had the um, <clears throat> I was listening to episode 33 of the uh, Abs and the Six Pack and they're talking about how they have uh, all types of minorities in the, in the lodges today. Well, we definitely have a large uh, um African-American uh, lodge here, and I see a lot of Freemasons 
in Trenton. So, stickers on the cars. <clears throat> so that's cool. I don't know enough about it, to be honest. But uh, there's some things that I have collected. But anyway, we're not talking about Freemason Street right now. We're talking about just the concept of certainty in religion, in memes. And we're trying to put together a theory of how these memes transform and what direction they're going in. <clears throat> now, every meme requires a fuel, and it's fueled by different things. The fuel is the jet engine fuel that gives it the power to take over new mines and to jump from one body to the next. So these are normally base emotions. We talked about that on previous podcasts. And that was Buddha's key insight in craving and rebirth. If you stop the craving, you stop the rebirth. Well, craving is the fuel and rebirth is a copying of the meme because the meme is reborn into a new body. And it transforms, it transfers itself to a new into a new uh, host. Now, <clears throat> okay. So basically what I'm trying to get at now is that we have a, uh, let's call it old style American Right? The unenlightened American. The one who does not want the enlightenment. Who wants the certainty of religion. And they've, they came here a long time ago to belong to various sects. They have their particular viewpoint. And that's cool. But what we want to do is we want to understand the situation. We want to put a, we're building a model. We're reflecting upon this model. We're observing our situation and bringing it into terms. We're putting names on things so that we can have power over them. The Rumpelstiltskin principle. The Rumpelstiltskin principle. If you have a name for something, you can address it and you have power over it. You make it into the subject of a discussion. That's a language tool. Okay. And the MIT professor, the late Patrick Winston, said we have only one language processor 
and that one language processor can only process one thing at a time. So the language processor is the bottleneck of the brain, according to his theory. And the language processor is, according to his theory and Chomsky's theory, the key mutation that where they say 50,000 years ago humans were reduced down to a population of a couple thousand and this mutation took over and this mutation was that you could say a plus b equals c in unending limits and create trees and chains of thought that would remain I guess in the verbal linguistic mind and you can construct all logic from those simple rules and I've been really getting into it recently into the rules that make up mathematics and logic and programming I've been learning about the lambda calculus again which I knew but I've been approaching the y combinator which is this crazy self-replicating idea. It's the self-replicating function, the infinite function, the infinite loop. Okay. Oh, now I see Venus. <clears throat> Venus has appeared in the East. All right then. But enough about me. I'm not the subject of this talk today. We don't know exactly what the purpose of life is. We can come up with different theories for it. And those theories might fit some model. We can collect data. We can observe and try and understand and then we can we can model things sometimes it takes us a long time to click like you can look at the map of a town and you can try and understand it. But until you walk through all the city, the streets and try and navigate, to go from point A to point B over and over again, that model of the city is not going to be as detailed or accurate from, as from a simple glance. Of course, now someone with a visual memory could just look at the map and they could just keep it in their mind and remember it. Someone who's not so lucky 
they could walk through it and try and understand it and try and piece things together bit by bit until they reach some understanding. They create a model of it. And eventually they could also draw that map and share that understanding. Okay. <clears throat> so, a lot of the conspiracy theories that we're talking about really are biblical, and those are ways to explain things. Those are maps that have been handed down. It's like, oh, here's a map. We drew this map. We walked all over here. This is what we came up with. And um, maps of things that we don't know are very, they're full of variables, like X's and Y's, right? And you get into some pretty crazy math when you don't have enough uh, knowledge about something. And a lot of this theology is really um, difficult to reason about. But uh, I'm just trying to beat around the bush here. You know, yesterday in our podcast, we broached a whole bunch of different ideas, which were all basically coming from Christianity. Like we talked about Dante's Inferno, we talked about demons and angels, and we talked about um, you know, is there a God, is there not a God, right? So <clears throat> meaning of life. So if we want certainty, and you want a structured idea, then obviously religion is very structured and it's very certain. And it'll give you symbols that you can talk to other people about, common languages, and it's useful for communicating. But that doesn't necessarily make it true. But it's a model. Let's say that religion is also just another conspiracy theory that's very well adopted popular one. These are models of reality that people share and that get copied over time and mutate over time and they have high certainty factor and high structure factor. Let's put it that way. <clears throat> Now, 
here on the stream of random, we came up with the idea of the fungus. And we're developing it a bit. And it is not very well structured. Not very well known. And it's also not very certain. So it's lacking on the attributes that would give uh, religion, you know, make religion very valuable. So um, that's one way of looking at it and putting things into relation. Now, it's interesting how the topology of this city is uh, limited by rivers and streams. We have all types of water here. We have a stream. I mean, basically, New Jersey is like mostly swamp. And the swampland gets channeled into streams or the water I mean you still have to uh, deal with all this water and the water is uh, draining into the Delaware River So you've got certain points in the city where more people will meet because they're forced to go there because of the nature of the um, because of the nature of the uh, of the land. So the chances of encountering someone in the middle of the night are higher because everyone has to go that way. So I think um, the Indian name is Asapunk. for the creek and it kind of meanders around um, and it defines the whole city of Ewing and splits it in many way, different ways it creates a natural boundary and um, it really creates uh, some nice uh, little neighborhoods too So, yeah, I wanted to get that off my chest uh, because 
you know, we were talking about, and you'll hear that when we finally get this episode edited and out there, but we we're talking about these, um, the mark of the beast and all that. And I was saying to Chris after the show that I think <clears throat> a lot of this fear and uh, I mean, okay, there's a couple different ways to look at it. Is the mark of the beast something that is true outside of like, is it actually truth? See, is it a model? Does it represent a deeper truth or not? <clears throat> you know, are we in the apocalypse or not? And it's, it creates this uh, worldview that's really like a black hole. Um, or has a gravitational pull to it. Right? And, um, well, the first thing that pull, I think, is fear. Right? I think it's fear. Like, be afraid. And, uh, surrender. And then you will be assured to go to heaven and you'll survive the apocalypse. Well, you'll die and go to heaven, I guess. And then be resurrected. And, um, see, that's where there's an interesting con confluence between the ideas of machine learning solving equations the fungus theory and the apocalypse and resurrection well because in these algorithms in genetic algorithms you breed solutions you breed generations and then you take the best of the breed and you combine them so basically the genetic algorithm is that you create a uh, randomized uh, set of genes that will create creatures to solve a problem let's just say you have a model and that model is random and then over time you take, um, you let them live and do their thing, and then you take their genes and look at, uh, for each gene pool, how do they solve the problem that you're trying to solve, and you breed new ones. So is it nature? So the guy, one of the guys on our, I, 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 uh, sampled from my podcast he said it is um this information it's a tape it's information um 
that is uh, being collected and written into our genes as to how it's just a storage mechanism for communicating. But we have other methods of communicating. That's an interesting way. And that nature is writing the tape. <clears throat> we do the same thing in computers, the simulated genetic algorithms. And in machine learning, you've got training data sets. You've got models that are trained and with feedback. And the feedback, the feedback loop are generally um, gradient functions, which adjust the weights in certain ways. But I guess you could use mutations as well and apply some kind of genetic algorithm to that modification of the weights. Where the gradient function is just kind of a mutation. So there's the, the connection between them. At least for me. I don't know if I explained it very well. But the fungus theory says that, you know, the planet is breeding humans to solve its resource extraction problem. Right? And we're just the function that it's been, that it bred. You know, and uh, we talked about on the podcast, we said, well, what is sentience? You know, the ability for the universe to see itself. And, um, I think we have to abandon, in some way, the human-centric part of that. And I think maybe we'll see that animals are sentient too, in certain ways. And that they also... I mean, my heart went out to these poor cows I saw in Pennsylvania. The young bulls trapped in pens. What if they're sentient? And they're trapped in this pen and they're saying, what's the purpose of life? You know, to be born, to be slaughtered, to feed the humans. Why did God give me this awareness of it so I could suffer so much? mice caught in the glue trap. You know, there's a lot of, uh, so I think that these animals, uh, have varying degrees of ability to, let's say, be aware and reason about the planet and we have evolved to have some sentience, some awareness, 
we also discussed whether or not this awareness, and I tweeted about that, whether or not this awareness, this mind, is actually in the brain, or I said if it's attached through quantum entanglement. <clears throat> and, um, And he brought up a very good point and said, what if the, um, the body is a vessel that is capable of being connected to, and a computer could also be such a vessel or something else. All right. These are some pretty deep things that we don't know enough about. But the idea of quantum entanglement, I could just touch on that. Basically, what I read was that faster than light communication is available for quantum entanglement, that um, atoms or particles are connected somehow over space and then they can they can um, when one if it moves in one place it also moves in the other but at faster than the speed of light and I was just wondering if that could have enough bandwidth to transfer consciousness over space. And I have some theories about the quantum nature of the mind dealing with probabilities of things instead of um, actualities. <clears throat> and um, I just have this theory, this thought, that somehow there are like energy fields that connect people and that symbols and so forth aid in accessing them I'm not exactly sure this is just a gut feeling um, and I need to do some more thought on it 
It's very hard to put into words. Just an intuition. Maybe someday it'll come to me. Let's check on our recording, shall we? Yeah, 44 minutes. 44 minutes. All right, then. Um... So, um, yeah, so a lot of these ideas, I mean, we've been learning a lot together. Um, I've been learning a lot by um, studying these topics with you guys on this podcast. This new books network is really a well of knowledge and a lot of the stuff is new that no one has really heard about yet. And by giving you interesting samples of it, you don't have to listen to all of them yourself. You don't have to listen to the whole things unless you're interested in them and you can go deeper. Oh. Right. Well, I'm going to take a break here because I feel like I need to. I'm going to think about things a little bit. And I'll check back in with you guys later. Okay. So I'm going to just throw in some things here that I thought of previously that have been keyed by our current conversation. And, um, you know, take take it at... Take it for what you want. But, um, first of all, I'd like to say that uh, we shouldn't consider consciousness to be personalized, as in exclusive to our person. That if there is a disembodied consciousness or awareness, that it could very well be global or stellar or galactic or universal that it might just be bits of stars heavy metals like gold in us that are resonating with a star you know and that could be I mean, it could be that our consciousness lives inside of the sun. And that is the vision that I had on multiple occasions. I have no explanation for it. I have no reason for it. It's just what I felt, what I saw. That our souls, I think, are are hosted in the sun. And that they're not necessarily personalized. 
I mean, sure, the expression of them inside of a person would be personalized. But once you're outside of that person, there is no ego or self. Anyway, these are just some crazy thoughts that I've had, and I wanted to share them with you because I thought they would be appropriate at this time. I have no proof for any of this. It's just how I feel. <sighs> well, good to get that off my chest. Okay, 5.30 in the morning. Something crazy happened. I'm at the uh, undisclosed location of a higher learning institution. And um, I see this guy in a truck huge dump truck and he's like pulling out of like some dead end street it's like what is this so he flags me down he asked me how to get to some location i'm like well i'll ride with you i'll try and show it to you so i got him out of that bind and i brought him to where i thought it was and uh, we saw campus police so he flagged them down and asked them for directions but uh <laughs> I got to ride in a humongous dump truck. It was cool. And then he's like, Hey, man, are you going to vote this year? I said, uh, It doesn't matter. My vote doesn't matter. It's like, They don't do what they say they're going to do anyway. What's the point? He's like, That's right. So now we're back on track here with a little walk. And I thought I'd just share that with you. I'm listening to the Kunstler cast. They're talking about um, Al Birmingham, Alabama being the oldest, the youngest old city. It was founded in 1890, the old buildings, the first big buildings. And they just got founded and then. Um, the Great Depression came in the 30s, World War One, World War Two, and then postmodern architecture and the car took it down so that the city never got a chance to uh, really survive or grow. And that it was on the, uh, it's on the Mississippi River and a lot of other towns. Yeah, some crazy stuff. Just thinking about Wheeling, West Virginia. That's some town that was really hit. America has so much desolation. It's incredible. I don't know if you've ever been to out, out there, but we drove around a lot. We lived in Kansas, and we saw some abandoned places, let me tell you. Crazy stuff. So, uh, I'm going to continue listening to that, and uh, I will talk to you guys in a bit.
Okay, well, I'm going to just recap what I learned while it's fresh in my mind. So what these guys are doing is they are, um, they have architects and they have uh, financing and property development. And uh, <clears throat> basically they're looking in a city for places where, which are attractive, two places that are attractive. And then they seek, they're seeking to develop the area between those two places. And they were talking about urban trails, which I thought was really interesting. What's an urban trail? Um, they said there was urban trail nonprofits. And, um, <clears throat> well, I definitely have ideas on, uh, there's some state owned properties here in New Jersey, actually quite a few of them that could, that are all fenced off and they could definitely put in some trails to connect different areas of the city. That would be amazing. Um, <clears throat> if we change the fencing uh, a little bit. Okay, so urban trails, that's something to look into. And then they said um, you have to have a long-term perspective. And they work with the owners of the buildings. And they find out all the people who own everything in that area. And they try and get them to work together. And they're buying up old dilapidated buildings putting in storefronts taking parking lots and turning them into plazas with shops facing them so creating plazas out of parking lots getting rid of parking area creating storefronts and um, basically revitalizing walkable areas in a city by um, yeah, creating uh, places where you can walk between two places. So that's an interesting idea. I like it. So I was thinking, um, yeah, the idea of working with uh, creating consortia, creating, uh, talking to local banks. And, um, working with people to create these projects, I think is quite interesting. Stakeholders, property owners. And I was thinking that we could probably create some kind of algorithmic intelligence to pick up on these opportunities. That we could collect all types of data. You're saying that the census data is out of date. If we had enough information, enough intelligence, if we did some proper intelligence gathering, we could um, we could find these opportunities. Um, It's really about putting the pieces together. So yeah, those are some of the things I took away from it. Um, they were saying that uh, big banks only look at slam dunks. They don't. They have a zero appetite for risk. They see everything only as downside. 
they don't ever see the upside but if you look at local banks they want to invest in their local community so they have an upside so that's that's one takeaway um, <clears throat> and they were saying that um, people who study urban design are basically learning the old ways and not the new ways and instead of creating new urbanism meaning uh, greenfield projects they want to revamp existing old buildings so yeah um, now if I bring this back to the curb crate idea with local distribution points uh, those aren't walkable necessarily but he's talking about creating walkable experiences which would be more like kiosks and um, Yeah, I don't have the solution. I have a lot more to think about. Complicated problem. Traveling salesman problem level discussion. We need to get deeper into these combinational algorithms. We need to listen to more some Richard Karp and understand MP versus P. Polynomial time. We need to... Um, figure this all out a little bit more because uh, but I will say that now we've had this discussion and I was saying that it's good that machine learning is hard and it's good that the math is hard because that protects us from abuse and that was that whole discussion we had on Twitter and uh, let me just say a couple of words about that maybe I should just uh, stop the tape and create a new segment Yeah, creating segments in a podcast recording is probably the most effective way of structuring it. Um, <clears throat> it's a little bit of work to do to hit the stop and start button. And obviously, a good recording software. I mean, ideally, I just want to be able to say, hey, start a new segment here and have my assistant... My digital assistant pick up on that and we don't need no super artificial intelligence to uh, figure that command out 
We're talking about basic stuff here. And that's where I think AI is good. Now, <clears throat> I'm just thinking that this idea of isolationism, right? This idea of having your own safe space to live in. Okay. The idea of American settled settlers finding some little town where they can practice their religion and live on their own. I mean, I didn't mention that they actually didn't want people from other religions in their towns. Right? That's the other thing going on. These were not multicultural uh, villages. It was a pluralistic society, but it was not multicultural. They did not support different viewpoints in their little enclaves. Okay, so, um, but the question is, in terms of mathematics, right, I think this whole idea could be considered a form of encryption where, uh, you know, you secure, you pra practice operational security in your life and you crypto encrypt everything in such a way that it's protected against external influence, right? And that also includes the external influence of a digital overlord, right? Meaning, what is an AI except a tool used by someone else, right? What is an algorithm except just another hammer? Now, we could get into philosophical debates if uh, it becomes a self-propelled system, self-driven intelligence, okay? That's like way beyond what we're talking about here. But in general, and this is part of this whole insight into the quantum, idea I had. I can't really put it into words, but it kind of goes like this. Um, normal cryptography is slowly being eroded by quantum computing, which can solve a lot of these problems at a much higher rate. So, what if our brains are quantum computers, right? creating fields of solutions. What if our lives are quantum states in superposition where we have multiple things happening in our life at the same time, like the Schrodinger cat? And um, how does that affect our uh, singular language system? How does that affect the bottlenecks you know, we try to do math in your head, you might have multiple processes running in parallel, but how do you connect them together with your language unit to make sense with the symbols? Right? What's the synchronization system? 
and um, this is something that Wolfram was talking about with his uh, uh, computational equivalence and uh, impartiality to ordering the invariance of uh, computation. What order do you do things? It doesn't matter. They all happen in parallel. Okay, I guess I'm getting confusing topics here. <sighs> trying to take a stab at this. I don't really know. Um, I don't have the answer right now, but I feel... My feeling is... That... Somehow... We have a lock grip on multiple parallel realities in our sphere of consciousness and that it extends beyond a single plane of existence or single reality and that questions of security and questions of um, encryption tie into that because the reality is encrypted in this matrix as well. How's that sound? Like, where's the point if we have a collective subconscious then reality is the matrix and there is no spoon, so to say. Right? Does that make sense? That There's a probability of a spoon. And there's a spoon in some of the realities and some not. Some of the probabilities and some of the non-probabilities. I mean, there's different probabilities of things happening. And your mind can touch uh, many of them. I'm, I'm having ideas in my head. I just have, I'm having a hard time putting these into words, and we're going to need some more time on this. But roughly speaking, if there is, roughly speaking, maybe um, the idea of the computing overlord is just or AI, it's just one person trying to t dominate another person. Let's put it that way. Right? And that we protect ourselves using mathematical complexities and encryption and other forms of compl natural complexities, let's put it that way, that protect our souls, let's say that, that our soul is maybe encrypted in some form in the universe um, or minds and that it protects itself. How's that? Maybe that's a way of putting it? Alright guys, time for some shopping and I will talk to you about a half an hour. Okay. Alright kids. 
I just found a bicycle. It was leaned up against a pole, and I had a big sign, and it said free. And it's just about my size. Red line R450, 540. It's got, uh, it's a road bike. 18 gears, a Velo plush seat. It's not bad. So now, I'm just going to push it home. It's got a flat tire on the front, so I can't ride it. But it's just about my size. It could be my wife's size. Uh, so it looks like we got a new bicycle. So, isn't that nice? The confluence of things. Why would someone give away a bike like this? <clears throat> and, uh... Yeah, life's funny sometimes. So I was just thinking, you know, we don't really know, but uh, part of, so there's a couple different theories that I have, right? So Timothy Leary said that we can gain access to our genetic memories. And, um, Robert Antons Wilson said that people who take a certain drug, peyote or something, in different parts of the world report seeing a dancing green man. Now, there's different interpretations of how, you know, you could see that. But what if we were accessing a genetic memory? What if the uh, that particular drug activated a certain memory that's stored in the genetic uh, system and that then somehow instantiates itself into life in your brain. So there's a connection between genes, actions, and mind. Is that possible? Well, how is it possible that the beaver knows how to build a beaver dam, right? And um, is the demonization of the other, the enemy, the outsider, right? Is that maybe part of our process of dealing with other people? That's maybe part of the closed mind type system of the settlers, you know. We live in our holy space and everyone else is the devil. Um, <clears throat> and is everybody... See, this is kind of getting into the question of, you know, who all is evil. And... Uh, You know, trying to make sense of good versus bad outsiders, right? And you could say, well, if they believe in God, and then they're the good people. Do they believe in the categorical imperative of Kant, do unto others as you want them to do unto you? Or the rules, if you follow these rules, if everyone followed these rules, then society would be better. 
So, these are some deep, 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 complicated problems. Uh, I don't want to go too crazy into them, but I just wanted to say that that's kind of where my mind is going um, with these questions. And the question of, you know, trying to reflecting over yesterday's talk, which you'll get to hear soon enough. I hope. It was silly because I didn't actually take a recording. I should have just recorded it locally, but I didn't. Uh, I don't know how to use this clean feed system. So uh, I hope Chris, he says he has the recording, so we're just going to beg him to send us a copy. Um... just get this bicycle pump type pumped up now oh, it's even got the uh, speed valves so it needs a special pump for the tires so luckily I got all that stuff got quite the bicycle uh, workshop going on at home For sure, if you want to go fast and you want to go somewhere, then a bicycle's a great thing to have. <clears throat> yeah, so, I mean, I had this, I was thinking about this, you know, like, what is identity? And is our sense of self just a construct that's somehow tied up? in our concepts is it somehow encrypted or encoded or just our self is just is the construct itself like um, is the self a construct you know that's kind of what we're worried about we're thinking about anyway I'm going to uh, stop this here it's too loud 717, we're gonna get home soon. Hey, doggy. Okay, party people. I am going to leave you now with a clip from Jack Spierko in his latest rant. And he's quite the uh, smart guy. He's talking about Carlos Ca uh, Castaneda and other philosophers, if we live in this world or not. And um, his whole podcast is worth listening to. But I just clipped this one section where he's talking, first of all, about how you have the imperative to use your freedoms or lose them. That people can clear the way for you, but you have to drink. You know, you can lead a horse to water, but you have to drink. And then he talks about reprogramming your brain and how most people are lazy programmers. And, um, <clears throat> well, it's definitely what I'm up to, let me tell you. And, um, I'm also about inspecting the code that we've been programmed with, like observing our programming, reflecting on it, and reverse engineering it. 
Anyway, I'll leave you with him, and uh, I hope you have a great day, and I'll see you tomorrow on our next walkcast. Moved again. It is very important to understand this, because then what you realize is that whatever hands you're dealt, you must claim as much freedom in it as you can now, rather than expecting that someone will make it better in the future, because they may or may not. But even if they do, it will still be on you to act upon it. The next, you have to be mindful of a term I never even used before last night. I came up with a term, micro-programming. I don't know if anybody else has ever even used that term, and maybe I should change it to micro-mental programming or micro-self-programming. And you have to debug your shitty code. That's something I have said before. But what I realized last night, and this is probably what happens a hundred times a day for a lot of people, As you begin to separate from this, remember I talked about being falsely assuming to be free? You have these recurrent thoughts that you know are of the old Jew. You hear something about what some ass clown politician did, and you have the flash of anger, and then you let it go, and you think you've done a great thing. But if you didn't stop and rewrite that little microcode you just wrote, it's still in your head, even though you think you let it go. The brain is a computer. You executed a command. When you hear about politician X, be angry. I'm going to let anger go now. I'm going to go on to fishing or eating a taco or whatever it is. Changing my kid's diaper. Whatever it is. You just you had that thought, you let it go. Well, you, didn't, you didn't cancel it out. When you start having these thoughts and you start to realize that these hooks of the system's control, the media, the education system, societal pressures, uh, rules that are seen as laws, even though they're neither rules nor laws, they're just accepted dogma. And those thoughts come in and all you do is let them go instead of rewrite them. The brain has now accepted that piece of shitty code. And what I know from marketing is if that piece of shitty code is written... That little microcode is written seven times. You will never let go of it without extreme effort. That's the seven-touch rule in marketing. If I touch you with a message seven times, if I get you to consume the message seven times, I will permanently write it into your brain to where it will affect your decision-making going forward. If it's buy widget X, it may not result in you buying widget X. But when you hear the term widget X, you will have a reaction And that reaction is not useful to me as a marketer because either you'll buy it, you'll talk about it, and you can talk about it negative or positive. I don't care. I just care that. I care that you talk about it because if you talk about it, I've got branding. And if I have branding, I will have sales. Now, imagine you're doing that to yourself. Politician X says stupid thing Y. I hate Politician X. That happens seven times. Doesn't matter if it's over a year, a month, a week, a day. Doesn't matter. It's seven touches. That is now going to have a lasting, lingering effect. And the only way that you have to control that is when you have that thought, you must be mindful of it. And then you say, okay, that was an incorrect command, brain. And you can say it however you want, but this is the message. This actually does not affect me. Or I have no influence on this, and I must release it, and it is more important for me to focus on blah, blah. However you do it, you must rewrite that microcode. And you must do it to the point where it starts happening when you don't. You must be mindful at first, and if you do so, you do anything for 30 days, you create a habit. Once you create a habit, it's hard not to do it. If you, This is probably the most important thing I will tell you today. If you will commit, the hell with 30 days. 
from now until Thanksgiving, whenever you have a thought that pulls at you toward control, you will stop, you will give yourself 15 to 30 seconds to rewrite that code. If you do that from now until Turkey Day, you'll never not do it for the rest of your life. And then you will accept your, your role. You are the primary programmer of your self-learning computer that is your brain. The system of control is exercised on the, on the fact that most people are lazy, pathetic, sorry-ass programmers of that brain and therefore will write shitty code over and over and over again if prompted to. Because the media doesn't put that thought in your mind. You do in how you react to it. But it's up to you, and they know that you will.